Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. <laughs> there. I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks for joining us. I just spoke with Maki Fukuoka about her new book, The Premise of Fidelity, Science, Visuality, and Representing the Real in 19th Century Japan. This was published with Stanford University Press in 2012. This is a book that very effectively transcends disciplinary boundaries by creating a study about visuality, forms of knowing and evidence in a context of 19th century Japan that transcends fields of history of science, history of medicine, history of Japan, art history, history of botany, by incorporating elements that are of interest to all of them into a story that can very easily be accessed um, and be treated as something that's a very informationally, but also conceptually meaningful by scholars working in any of these fields. So it's a study that focuses on practices of observation and practices of reconciling different forms of evidence in the knowledge of objects, especially of materia medica, by a group um, in 19th century Japan who are working on forms of knowledge that are important to their practice as doctors and that later become important to some of them in their practice as bureaucrats for the state. It's a really interesting consideration of the ways that if we move away from understanding contexts like this in terms of dichotomies of East and West, dichotomies of science and non-science, of text and image, and toward a way of thinking about how modes of understanding for these people in um, 19th century Japan, but also perhaps more broadly, involve a process of movement among different kinds of media without necessarily feeling like they or we have to choose among them or prioritize among them necessarily, depending on context, how thinking about the history of science, the history of visuality, the history of images, and history more generally might actually change, how it might change the terms of the conversation. So it's a study that is really interesting and useful if you're interested in images, in objects, if you're interested in plants, in medicine, or in Japan, or any of the above, or none of the above. And it was a a real pleasure to talk with Maki about this project and to hear a little bit also um, toward the end about what she's working on next and how these interests that are developed in the book are going to continue to be developed in later projects. So I hope you enjoy. um, And here is the interview. We're here today to talk with Baki Fukuoka about her book, The Premise of Fidelity, Science, Visuality, and Representing the Real in 19th Century Japan. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Maki, and thank you so much for making the time to talk with me today. Well, thanks for having me. Of course. So, Maki, could you start us off by saying a little bit about your background? What brought you to the field of art history and its engagement with modern Japan? Um... Yeah, I started out studying photography as an art practice in undergraduate, and I realized very quickly that I wasn't very good at it, <laughs> taking photographs <laughs> and developing photographic images. But I wanted to find a way to stay very close to it. So history of photography was one way in which I figured I can still look at the images and talk about them. And so that was at the end of my bachelor's degree. And for master's degree, I was studying American history of photography. And so I wasn't particularly trained as a Japanese historian up until then. But it was also at a time when I took some courses in my graduate school about Japan. And there seems to be an intersection between history of photography and what I was studying in those, you know, intellectual history of modern Japan. And that's really where... Uh, the book originated. So the book that we're talking about today looks at changing modes of visuality, changing modes of understanding visuality, and the evidence of knowledge of the natural world in Tokugawa Japan and Meiji Japan. It focuses on the 19th century. 
So how did you come to focus on this particular period and this particular set of texts and people? So what brought you to this as a dissertation topic? Yeah, um, it's, so after I took some courses on modern Japan uh, during my graduate course, I started looking or reading a lot of books about Japanese history of photography. And then it, it all started in the same place. In 1858, somebody got camera. And I knew that's probably a fact. But I also felt that was a very easy, clean entry of technology. So I started digging a little bit earlier, not in terms of uh, technological uh, importation, but as a concept. And um, so I, I wrote a dissertation proposal, which was about rewriting that beginning of Japanese history of photography. And as I went to do my dissertation research in Japan, I I came across this bunch of groups of herbalists <laughs> that were making really amazing images uh, with inks, but also with photography. And uh, prior to that, as I talked in the introduction, there was a trip to Leiden where I was uh, trying to look at this particular uh, zoberoscopic lens uh, that was brought from Japan to Leiden and encounter this manuscript, which really didn't fit into the narrative history of photography of Japan that I was accustomed to. So those two things were the triggers, I think, of this book. I love that word too, zogerscope. <laughs> one of my favorite words in the book. So, <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> I just love that. So can you talk a little bit about how you transformed the project from a dissertation into a book? Were there any notable moments along the way or anything about the process that involved either um, significant revision, significant transformation in the way you were thinking about uh, the issues and the arguments that you were making, and or was there anything notable about um, the, the narrative that you adopted in the book versus the dissertation? Any aspect of that process you want to share with us? Okay. We'd love to hear. Well, so the dissertation was really written for my committee, and I think that's true to anybody. And uh, they were consisted of two art historians, one Japanese historian. And when I was writing, revising it as a book, I realized some of the discussions in the dissertation was so narrowly um, uh, argued that it doesn't have any relevance to anyone outside of history of photography or history of art, uh, per se. And so... There was a lot of rethinking about the audience, and I'm not sure if I, I'm still not sure if I reached the audience that I wanted to reach, but there was an adjustment. Okay, so who am I speaking to? And in that process, I chunked three chapters, I think, from my dissertation, and we wrote two new chapters, and also we organized a lot of materials within. Um, so the shift focused from talking specifically about visuality as, you know, uh, theorized by certain Western philosophers, etc., to really focusing on historical context in which these materials were embed embedded. So what, if you don't mind me asking, because this is actually, it's a really interesting set of issues, what audience did you specifically want the book to reach, and what um, what chapters did you add as a result of that? Yeah, so the audience I wanted to reach were beyond a historians of photography. Uh, that I knew. <laughs> and I also wanted to reach audiences in history as a field, uh, or intellectual history as well. And but those would be Japan specialists. Um, and I also figured there has to be a conversation that this book can offer between science, technology, and art. Uh, and those are the three kind of broad categories of audiences that I imagined. And um, so the chapters that went out as a result of this were chapters that... <laughs> talked specifically about outlines. So there's 
It is in a book. Um, you know, if you start looking at the pictures alone, you see some of the images have really bold outlines, and the ink writing's you know wooded. And uh, so there's a chapter about outlines in my dissertation, <laughs> and I figured I can find a way to uh, footnote it. Not that it's less important, but it's really hard to um, test the, the patience of the audience, for instance, who are interested in science and technology by my elongated, you know, argument about outlines. Um, so I, I, I struggled with it, actually. <clears throat> uh, the, sorry, the chapters that I wrote for this book well, the first two chapters that really sets this group within the historical network of people that existed in Japan, uh, and you know, talked about what made, uh, medical doctor, what it meant to be a doctor, uh, medical doctor, sorry, uh, in this period. That's so interesting because I think one of the you know coming at this as a reader and as a reader trained in the history of science. Um, as well as Chinese history, it's I, I read this as very much, very comfortably and wonderfully situated within a discourse of history of science literature too. So, so this is to say that whatever you did to refashion this into the kind of book that would be um, a very coherent object that would appeal to multiple different communities, including communities of the history of science and medicine, well done. Um, I think it, it really succeeds in doing that. In fact, I think this is. Um, in some ways, and we can talk about this later if you want, or, or I can just—I'll just mention this for listeners who might be interested. This um, forms part of what we might consider to be a kind of community or a dialogue about uh, visuality, observation, images, and the history of science within the, the field of the history of science and the history of medicine. And so I think it manages at the same time to both contribute and feel very, or be situated very comfortably in Japanese history, but also in the history of science. Mm. So, That's really great. I'm <laughs> grateful for your comments. Oh, no, no. This is, this is one of the things I think, you know, I'm uh, kind of biased in my, my um, <laughs> excitement about finding books that, that um, have one foot in the history of science and medicine and one foot in the history of Asia and East Asia specifically. So, you know, right. so, uh, so I was thrilled. <laughs> I was thrilled to read this book. Um, so, but to get, so let's get into the body of the book itself. Let's really kind of get into the arguments and get into the narrative. We've mm-hmm. talked a little bit about already the nature of the kinds of broad phenomena that you're talking about, and you just mentioned tangentially in your explaining of the way um, the, the book actually differs from what the dissertation was doing, you mentioned a group. So much of the book is going to look at the work of this group, and this is a group called the Shohyakusha. Yeah. Am I getting that sort of right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So this is a small community of scholars based in the castle town of Nagoya in the Owari domain who were interested in the study of Materia Medica. And I mention um, for listeners, and, and also just to bring this up at the very um, early part of the conversation, I'm mentioning that they were in the Owari domain because later on in the book, it's going to become apparent, is the, the locality that the work of this, the members of this group um, is or the locality of in, in which the work is happening is actually going to become really important to the nature of ideas about visuality and ways of representing the real that these um, group members are producing. And so the, the fact that this is in Owadi at the beginning is actually going to turn out to be really important in different ways. So um, can you start us off then by talking a little bit about this group? What was the nature of this group, um, and what do we need to know in order to understand um, what happens later on in the book as you explore the work of this group and the ideas of this group? Right. Um, so the group, we still don't have a definitive list of who was in it. There are occasional listing of you know who was who came to the meeting, etc. But mostly physicians who are trained either. Western medicine, Chinese medicine, there are two schools of Chinese medicines, um, but all health concerned citizens. And there are a few exceptional cases of gardeners or um, a pharmacologist. Those are exceptional. So majority of the group, probably uh, anywhere between 20, 20 to 25 during their active periods uh, in, a, in the group itself. And they were all living in Oari, 
but they also had uh, studied medicine in different cities prior to becoming a doctor. So they would continue to uh, have dialogues with their doctors in different domains throughout the activities. And their concern was mostly that they can't find, they wanted to be so certain of the herbs that are given to uh, the patients to, to cure their illness. And there was a problem with Materia um, Medica and you know, being able to identify if this plant is actually the variation of the Chinese source or if it's a completely different one. Great. And this is something, this is a concern that you um, refer to at various points in the book and certainly in this opening section of the book as the relationship of fidelity, the language of fidelity among yeah. the, the different forms of evidence that they're bringing together to both learn about Materia Medica to secure a sense of um, sort of reliable knowledge on which they can base their medical practice and also to differentiate among kinds of Materia Medica that might be confused with one another. And, um, and so this idea of fidelity becomes really important. And the book is going to go on to look at the way members of this group negotiated among textual knowledge, illustrations, and the plants, or in some cases the physical objects, the material objects themselves that were extant to Japan. And you make a, a, you kind of serially develop an argument in the book about the ways that these different forms of knowledge across this period that you're looking at in different ways, but all, you know, it's all related, mutually reinforce one another. So it's not one or the other. We're going to see um, knowledge making that emerges out of relationships among what we might consider to be otherwise very different forms of knowledge making. Now, this opens up actually a key theme in the book, and that is the changing meanings of the term shashi. This is a term that's used to mean photography in contemporary Japanese, but you show that it actually emerges from a very different kind of context. And so can you talk a little bit about uh, this term? Um, what, how did you settle on the term shashin as being one of the focal objects that you use um, to trace a history from this book? And why did this, how did this emerge to be so important for you? And how are you revising um, along the way the way other scholars or other people think about the connection between shashin and photography? Yeah, um, so I spoke a little bit earlier about how I started reading history of Japanese photography uh, in my graduate work, and there was this very clear beginning for everyone, every historian, and it was this year, and it was this uh, importation of camera. But the funny thing about history of photography in Japan, and I knew this back then, is that this term, shashin, that we use for photography, pre-existed the arrival of photography. And it has a long semantic history uh, that is borrowed from Chinese aesthetic discourse. So coming from this background where I studied mostly European and American history of photography, this was a very new thing. This was a very, seemed like a very interesting point of departure where in Europe, in America, photography is concocted, the word photography is concocted for this particularly new and interesting thing. So in Japan, you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit different conceptually. So that was always in the back of my mind that this term is something to investigate. But when I saw this manuscript, set up manuscript in Leiden, where the term was used as a title, without meaning that it means photography, without referring to photographic media, I thought, okay, this is a concrete example that I can recover my <laughs> long, on questioning and, and perhaps start answering it. Um, so it's, the, the other aspect of it, too, is that um, when historians of photography write about photography in Japanese, they take, they take this term shashin, and because this is, you know, second part shin, which can be translated as truth or real, they use that to explain what photography is, right? So because the term already has truth or real in it, photography is always inherently truthful and realistic. And I, I was troubled by that. I didn't know um, 
how I could resolve that. But I, I was, um, yeah, I was, I thought that has to be uh, unpacked a little bit more. And, and then this uh, project came along. Thank you so much. So one of the things that happens in the book is that in the service of unpacking that term and unpacking the different ways that that term becomes put into dialogue with notions of the real in different contexts, the chapters are going to successfully and successfully and successively, um, I think if I may say so myself, uh, (laughs) each look at different settings in which uh, the members of this group are reconciling notions of fidelity and visuality by putting into dialogue these relationship between the real and the transposition of the real or shashin. In their work as physicians in chapter one, in translations of texts from China and Europe in chapter two, in organized public exhibitions in chapter three, in the production of pictorial representations in different media, some of which are actually really fascinating in chapter four, and finally in the last chapter of the book, in governmental institutions in which they were employed. And and we'll see how issues of the state and the nation come into the the dialogue in a new way in this last chapter of the book. So let's start out at at the first chapter. Yeah. You just mentioned, and you've you've talked a little bit um, already about this manuscript in Leiden that changed the way you thought about um, Shashin and changed the way you thought about its relationship to photography. This is a work called the Honzo Shashin that was produced in 1826, and you you talk about this both in the introduction and the first chapter. So can you introduce for listeners um, a little bit, what was this manuscript, what was in it, and um, and in what way um, was it really important uh, to understanding what was happening with Shashin in this period. Yeah, so it's a set of um, manuscripts. It's a set of 15 prints, and there is no coherent media. Some are hand-drawn, and some are ink rubbings, and the set itself is called uh, Honzo Shashin. And it was brought to Leiden by uh, Siebold, who was a physician in Japan around that time, so as I did some archival research, it came very clear to me this manuscript was an evidence of a particular meeting between this group and Seabolt. So it's part of a conversation that really got this group started, thinking more of a, a representation and also a way to ask Seabolt for confirmation of their own knowledge. A particular plant is depicted. Is this, you know, what is the linear name for this particular plant, etc. So, it's a portfolio of different, uh, fifteen different prints made with different techniques, grouped together under the title of Onzo Shashin. Shashin again meaning photography in contemporary Japan, but must have meant something else then. And um, it really became our uh, a puzzling piece uh, because, as I say in the chapter one in introduction, the ways that these images are made are still mysterious to me, some of them. Uh, so it seems to be a copy, but exactly how it was copied uh, from, you know, from which original is still uncertain. So it's a, it's a great book of mis- manuscript of mystery. <laughs> and you actually, there's some wonderful um, descriptions of and images of the recto Mm-hmm. The surface of some of these images in the book, in which you actually can see outlines, just to, to kind of, yeah. um, evoke it's, one of the things that you were talking about earlier, outlines of the, the perhaps the actual specimens from which these images are, are made. Right. And, and, and I guess what, what is interesting about this portfolio, in addition to this you know, different media, is that it was made by this group to bring to this meeting with Seabolt in other words, it's it's something that they produce so that they can um, ascertain better information. Um, oftentimes, this group, you know, very local group, <laughs> a small group, when they were written uh, in history of Japan, they are understood to be a mediator that they they took something from the West and introduced to the Japanese community. But what it, what this manuscript shows is that no, it's not actually this passive. Uh, relationship that they were acting accordingly. They were actually active. They were active and asking questions to Seabolt and they were producing images. And that was another aspect of this group that really attracted me is that they were local. They're 
they seem unimportant in this geography of Japanese science so far, but what they did had a significant ripple effect, in, especially when it came to Meiji. And um, the other thing uh, that I want to mention is that in, if you, in history of Japan, 19th century, oftentimes scholarly works are uh, uh, done on either Edo, which was the capital, or Kyoto, which was where the emperor resided. And there's not much else. It, it gives an impression. <laughs> there's not much else going on in English uh, history, you know, history of Japan about 19th, 18th, 19th century in English. And I thought, well, you know, maybe that needs to be modified a little bit. And Oari, as a location between those two cities, was uh, a very attractive element as well. Chapter one actually does a really nice job of situating the kind of work that's being done in the Honzo Shashin within this global context of medical ideas, medical knowledge, and medical practice in Awadi. And one of the things that you mentioned as being particularly notable about that practice is that although we tend to think about the history of medicine in Japan, and I would also say this is, this is also true for um, historiography of medicine in China, as an issue of dichotomies, right? So Japan versus the West, one versus the other. What's actually happening is that practicing um, physicians and certainly members of this group who are producing knowledge and trying to reconcile knowledge about Materia Medica, again, for the purpose of their practice, are negotiating among very different forms of uh, sort of what we might consider to be local or medical tradition. I, I use the word tradition in, you know, sort of scary, hairy uh, scare quotes right now. Um, but there's, you, you mentioned here, I think demonstrate really effectively that they were aware of the, the existence of a diversity of approaches to understanding the natural world. And they kind of moved between them in the course of their practice. So there's the latter day, um, ideas that are coming from uh, older texts in Japan. There's the, quote, old way of medical knowledge that's coming from Chinese texts. And then there's Western, what we might consider Western um, medical knowledge. And they coexist in this locality of Owari, and they coexist for the practitioners in a really interesting way that I think really helps us undo these yeah. dichotomies of historical medicine. Yeah, I mean, that, that's something very, it was very surprising to me as well, that they do know that these modes of knowledge exist and they they have their you know they have their own limits and oftentimes what happened in Edo or Kyoto was this kind of quarrel, you know, which method is more superior than the other, etc. But in, in this particular group, I think their main concern was curing their patients. So as long as something worked, it wasn't an alliance with a particular school of medicine that they were interested in. They were really interested in finding the cure. And it makes it very clear that this kind of dichotomy that's, you know, prevalent East-West or old Chinese or, you know, Dutch, all these things are very much a construct that really didn't matter to these people as much. So one of the really interesting thing that, things that happens in this part of the book mm-hmm. is that you're showing how experimental human dissections in the late 18th century are actually transforming the field of medical study by incorporating access to an actual or real, a physical human body as a source of medical knowledge. So can you talk a little bit about that and how um, the role that that's playing in the development of this knowledge of this period? Yeah, um, so a section of human human body was very much controlled by the the government back then. And um, medical practitioners relied upon books to understand anatomy up until then. Around the 18th century, late 18th century, there are several people who started to doubt what they understood in text and figured, okay, what's the best way to verify my knowledge? And that was to actually see the body. And so some, uh, the first one, Yamama Kyoyo, would experiment with water. Um, <laughs> because his master tells him, since, you know, you can't, you have to break a law to do human dissection. Why don't you try with otter? And he goes and finds an otter. And his, his problem isn't, he, he can't resolve this question. Um, so, Yamawaki is one example, but there are a few practitioners then 
we wanted to really see the actual body to be able to verify and also resolve the anatomical questions that they had in mind. This is kind of shift from you know, reliance on text to reliance on actual thing. And then very much the, the Shoyakusha's uh, practice is an extension of that logic that we should really be able to verify that through uh, our perceptual faculty before we take anything that's written in text for granted. So speaking of things that are written in texts, one of the really wonderful things that you show in the next chapter is the way that text functioned not in contradistinction to an image, but that also functioned as a kind of visual medium. Chapter 2 looks at the translation of works on Materia Medica. And one of the issues that comes up here before we get into the, um, the one of the really interesting texts that you talk about is the larger context that this is um, understood in, and that is the preoccupation of members of this group with names and with naming. So can you start us off um, in our discussion of this section of the book by talking a little bit about the importance of names and naming? Why is naming so important to these, um, these physicians and, and thinkers? Yeah. Um, so the texts that they were studying, either in, uh, imported through the Dutch or from China, were written in foreign languages. and. What they were interested, this group of people were interested in. So, so in other words, this text in, uh, in Latin or in Chinese would express the names of plants in their own languages. So there's a question, okay, we see a plant that seems to be, uh, seems to have a beneficial effect, for instance, for eye uh, disease, disease related to eye, but they couldn't figure out, well, there are multiple um, candidates for that within their own geographical location. So the plant represented in Dutch text, for instance, could be identified as X, Y, and Z in their own environment, both visually and through language. And on top of that, uh, in Japan at that time, there are so many regional names given to plants. So a village X might call the same plant in a different name. This complete disarray of names and plants that were happening, and one of the jobs that this group set out to do was to untangle these complicated relationships and make it much linear and you know slimmer the relationship between names and plants. So the chapter focuses on the work of a leading member of this group, um, Ito Kisuke, and his publication of a work that we um, can translate as Nominal Differentiations in Western Materia Medica. Now that sounds like a kind of long, elaborate title for what looked, for what winds up being a really fascinating, um, visually and conceptually, a really, really fascinating text. So this is... This, this is, um, turns out to be the first published attempt to apply Linnaean botanical nomenclature to Japanese flora. So this is you know, a, a moment where historians of science who are interested in classification and, and medicine and um, biology would, will perk up their ears, I hope. So Linnaean taxonomy becomes really important to this text. And the visuality of the script itself also plays an important role in Kisuke's publication. So um, would you talk a little bit about that, like how the, how the text itself becomes a kind of image, and what does that have to do with this use of and prioritization of Linnaean taxonomy? Yeah, um, that, <laughs> that's probably the best read in the chapter, but it's, it's very, um, so one of the, one of the, advantages of using Linnaean names according to this group was that it's based on the principle. The names are based on the principle, Linnaean names. And that's something that was lacking in the names in Chinese or Japanese or their regional names. So if you see a character for plant X, that character had no relationship to the plant itself. Whereas the Linnaean name had a relationship to the thing. So that name, the construction of the Linnaean name itself became 
very attractive or very alluring because once you, once you understand the principal organizing structure of the Linnaean system, anybody could speak with exact same name to each other so they can communicate and uh, not get confused about regional names and Chinese names, etc. The visuality aspect of the uh, alphabets, Roman alphabet, is another, I think, my impression is that they it became a way to make a shortcut so that we can, you know, anybody who understands Guinean names can come to an agreement much faster than having to go through uh, transliteration or you know phonetic adaptation of you know into Chinese character etc. So the alphabet became a visual code in a way that uh, Chinese or Japanese writings couldn't offer. And it's actually it's it's a really interesting part. I'm sorry, did I cut you off? Do you want to? No, no, no. I, I'm I'm not here for making. <laughs> oh, you no, no. You totally are. Uh, I think one of the really interesting things about this is that. Um, People might have seen, or listeners or readers of the book might have seen images uh, that look like this before, right? You have a page of text with yeah. um, Chinese characters, with Japanese um, alphabetic cap characters, and with Roman letters spelling out a name. And you know, what you might think, well, that's really interesting. I wonder why that would be. You know, why would an author preserve the the typography like that, or preserve the shape of of the local letters like that? What what comes out of that? And you know, this this chapter presents an explanation for that. And so it's a really, I think, interesting way to. Uh, and I, I also, you know, I'll direct listeners to the book itself because the chapter does a really wonderful way of really going into the intricacies of the kinds of decisions and the kinds of epistemic uh, bases on which an author would have decided to preserve the visual elements of all of these scripts on the same page um, in a way that's, I think, um, per- possibly translatable from this particular text in this particular context you're talking about into other ways of thinking about multiscriptural. Yeah, you know, manuscripts and publications that are coming out of um, very different contexts. So, so I'm, what I'm not saying is that the arguments here, you know, unproblematically would translate to other contexts because you're very, very careful to locate this very specifically. But it does give us, because the arguments that you're making are based on arguments from understanding how epistemic principles function locally. Yeah. That way of being sensitive to the epistemic principles that function locally in thinking about how to explain other cases of multi-scriptural publication, I think, is very useful. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that makes total sense. And I think that, that the fact that this was a group was so important in, in decisions like that, that they weren't interested in some kind of individual accumulation of knowledge. They really wanted to share this. Uh, and that there was this, you know, patients who were coming to them um, who, who needed to be cured. So the communication was the primary concern for them, and the, the fact that they used it's it's not a simple translation from Latin to Japanese or uh, the, the steps of very careful uh, strategic decisions that were made so that this book, as a Honzo Mesa, could be used as this communicate. Uh, device to communicate to much larger audiences. So speaking of much larger audiences, that actually brings us really nicely to the next chapter. Uh, chapter three looks at the practice of collective public exhibition as a way, or a honzokai, uh, as a way to generate knowledge of materia medica. So here, um, this is a totally fascinating chapter. These seem like really fascinating events. And at the beginning of the chapter, you walk us through the setting and the experience of a representative, or what might have been a representative collective exhibition by mapping out the space as represented in a woodblock print from 1844. And so just that mode of reading an image in that way is really interesting. But for listeners who might not be familiar with this kind of event, with this kind of exhibition, can you talk a little bit about what uh, what one might find there? So what kinds of objects are included? What kind of event was this? And what kinds of people would you see um, at this kind of event? So these are organized. The, the print that I uh, reproduced in the book is of an exhibition that was organized by the official, um, func- uh, official, yeah, official uh, medical school, 
But the function of it, it's a public exhibit, is um, function is to bring in people so they can actually see the things, uh, both exotic or indigenous, and verify the names. Again, I think the name was a very important aspect of it. The official, um, the, the print itself, in occasions like that, I think there were ex- uh, elements of novelty that weird new things were exhibited as well, sort of like a you know, precursor or something similar to World Exposition, but you know, much, much smaller scale. And the organizing scheme of exhibitions like that relied very much on Chinese uh, epistemology that, you know, from Materia Medica. So minerals, plants, uh, skeleton, uh, animals, you know, animal, uh, two-headed snakes, etc. Yeah, and the people, uh, you know, medical doctors, but also samurais, and in the paint itself, we see one woman with a child and several Buddhist monks. So I think that occasions like that were very much looked, people looked forward to going to, uh, to exhibition. So the chapter looks very carefully. It takes us into the setting, and it looks really carefully at how members of this group that we're talking about negotiated or triangulated, um, to use a a term that comes up a lot in the book, among different kinds of evidence in trying to reconcile knowledge about materia medica, which was one kind of object among the skeletons and the animal carcasses and all these other kinds of things that were focused on in these exhibitions. So they were triangulating uh, between or among what they saw, what they knew previously, and what they could learn anew from the materiality of the object itself, and also from other people at the site. And so um, can you talk a little bit about this process of negotiation, sort of how did um, incorporating, how were they thinking about the importance of incorporating um, the evidence from the physicality or materiality of the object itself, and also evidence from other people who might have been just kind of wandering in, who might know something about some of these objects. Yeah, the, there are a few examples uh, from the period that called for items um, for the exhibition that I analyzed in the book, and they seem to be the organizers oftentimes interested in uh, people bringing in their own stuff. So if you had a question about, you know, what tree is this or what, what is this flower? It's different from the flower I've seen before. Then people will bring it to the exhibition and uh, they can have a conversation. It will be exhibited. Someone would put a name tag to it. But there was always a discussion about whether or not that attributed name was right. Uh, can I just, <laughs> it makes me think of a kind of... Um, 19th century version of Antiques Roadshow. Yeah, please. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry, go on. There was no, like, yeah, exactly like that, except for the monetary value. Right. <laughs> so epistemic value or curative yeah. value, right, would replace monetary value. Exactly, yeah. And, and it was a very short, um, all the exhibitions were usually within, ended in a, in a day or three days at the most. So I... I and there's an element to this uh, particular chapter that I didn't really get to go into when I was revising it, but I think it's very much part of what was happening, um, is that there was, during this period, there was enormous appreciation of looking at or visually satisfying one's desire by looking at weird stuff. Um, there are a few articles written in English about it, but it's this practice of, for instance, you know, figures of uh, samurais that are made of chrysanthemum flowers or furnitures that are made to look like a mythological figure, um, seals that are taken from the ocean that you know one doesn't get to see often. So it's this, it's a popular culture that really appreciated seeing things that are not familiar. Uh, and I think in a sense, the medical the, the exhibitions that I talk about in this book are specifically for medical, organized by medically uh, related issues, but it can also be contextualized within this much broader popular culture where seeing became a, sort of like a, 
fun thing to do to, to spare one's time. And it's also related um, in a way, uh, interestingly, to what you're doing in the book in another part of this chapter, which is you can think about the, phenom- the larger phenomenon within which you're contextualizing this specific um, sort of set of uh, observations of Materia Medica you know, within this larger context of fascinations with the strange or the unusual, um, with you can put that into dialogue, basically, with the point that you're making in this chapter that heterogeneity, mm-hmm. which is a, a form of talking about the unfamiliar, right? Yeah. Heterogeneity and the um, embracing of an expectation of heterogeneity among different kinds of sources of evidence was actually crucial to observational practices by the members of this group in this right. period. And so that seems related, actually, to this larger phenomenon and this larger context of the unfamiliar and the strange. Right. right. I think they were never surprised to find something that they didn't know. In other words, they, they never concluded, right? We, we know everything. So surprise uh, itself was unsurprising. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so they're always on the verge of you know, being surprised or waiting to be surprised even. Um, and, and, yeah. <laughs> That's great. And, and I just, that, that there's so, that chapter itself also just opens up the promise of so many directions that um, that you can go with this material. And so it's, it's a really, really rich chapter. It's very focused and it's very carefully argued, but there are, I, I imagine readers, for, I imagine many possible readers reading that chapter and being very inspired to take it in lots of different directions. And, and I think that's one of the wonderful things about the book. I feel like there are a lot in the footnotes yes. that I didn't really, you know, put in the argument itself, but, um, yeah, yeah. Footnotes are where the treasures are. <laughs> well, that's actually a really useful thing to to um, direct listeners and readers to, right? Because that's not always the case. Um, yeah. in a, that's definitely the case. Here. So, um, this actually brings us to the next chapter, which is a chapter that looks really closely at two particular techniques of visual representation that are used by the members of this group we're talking about, copper etching and ink rubbing prints. Now, this is, uh, we've talked a little bit about ink rubbings as one of the media that's used in this uh, manuscript that you said, you know, from which your interest in this project originally emerged when you saw it in Leiden. But this is a particularly interesting visual medium for all kinds of reasons, uh, certainly in the context of uh, understanding what the product, what this particular kind of product of engagement, visual engagement means and meant to members of this group. So with that in mind, um, can you talk a little bit about this technique? What was ink rubbing, and what kind of image did it produce, and what epistemic role in terms of understanding the real, understanding observation, etc., etc., did this particular uh, medium play for the members of this group? Right. Um, yeah, ink rubbing, as far as I could tell, probably originated way back. But the way in which this particular group used was specifically for plants. So they would take a specimen, uh, they go, for instance, they go to excursions in the mountains, always looking for the new and the strange or whatever they haven't seen before. And they'll take a, a plant and they will apply it directly to the plant itself, oftentimes, or they'll take a plant and apply the ink indirectly by using this sample method that I talk about a little bit in the chapter. So what happens is one has either the mirroring image of the plant or the direct uh, transference of the shadow of uh, the plant itself, that the shadow meaning, meaning the ink part. And this, there are historians who argue that this came from uh, a practice of taking rubbings from uh, stone scriptures that you know, originated in China and somehow got made to the people that are applying to plants. Now, that has a very long history. And what I find interesting is that this is the only group that used this method to make images of plants. And in other words, people knew of this ink rubbing uh, of, of stone scriptures for long, many centuries, but nobody really thought to apply it to plants 
other than the student. So that, to me, is a very interesting point. And then there's another example. I think, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name right, but there's a guy named Kumihoff. He, he started making prints in Holland um, oh, in, in where he would take dried specimen of a plant and press it under the press machine and get an impression of a plant and use that as sort of like a shadow image. And oftentimes he would color it. There's beautiful examples that precedes, you know, this particular show action group. And they did also have copies of Kinihoff's uh, manuscript. So it's, it's really hard to say, you know, where did it originate? But the function of these prints for this particular group was to verify its existence, that the plant's existence. And literally, there are hundreds of manuscripts in Japan and also some in Russia and Britain and uh, Holland by this group. And they took thousands of these prints. Um, and they're incredibly simple. And that's the image that you see on the cover. Oftentimes, they'll just take an impression and write their name in red ink. And they would bring it back from the excursion. And uh, my, my imagination is that I, they would contrast it to what they, you know, illustrations they have of uh, the same plant in different documents or talk about it. And it was a portable uh, media as well. And I think that was also a, uh, a reason why this became a popular media among this particular group. You mentioned um, in your description of the importance of this particular medium, and again, um, just as a footnote, there's also an extended discussion of copper etching um, as a medium. We, won't, we don't really have time to talk too much about that, but I'll just um, gesture at that for listeners. It's also a really important uh, medium, and it's a really interesting part of this chapter. But going back to ink rubbing, so coming out of the footnote and going back to our main discourse, one of the points that you make in your discussion here, which is really interesting, is that this was a means of preserving not just the image of an object, but as a way of preserving a particular occasion. So yeah. as a, a way to prove that there was a witnessing of an object by an observer. And I think you used the phrase, it was a means to pictorialize one's encounter with an object. And so the actual um, topic or the actual object of the rubbing is just as much the encounter as it is the object, uh, the material object itself. Does, does yeah. this, um, I mean, does this have anything to do with the reason why this particular group may have used this medium more than others, or do you think there's any connection there between that? Yeah, I, I definitely think, yeah. That's, um, in some of the examples that uh, I've seen would write, you know, in addition to the print in their name, oftentimes they would reframe it. Uh, I think there's an example in the book of a hanging scroll. So they would take the print and they would frame it as a hanging scroll and write who was there when ink rubbing was made. So it becomes like a, um, what is it? What is that called? When you take it to a shop, like some important document you have to have someone to... Notarize it? Yeah, sort of like a notarized document. So the name of the person who was there and the occasion, the date. And, and sometimes they would go back to the same control and by additional information that they discovered later, and they would date that as well. So it's, it's just, um, yeah, and there's temporal element to it, definitely, uh, in addition to epistemological element. And to me, that's one um, perhaps overarching connection between these and photographic images. It's always about this time, particular time and meaning. Nice segue. That, that brings us really nicely um, into the fifth chapter. Yes, well done. Well done. Um, so the fifth chapter, and this is the final chapter of the book, looks at the use of photography. So we started out um, at the beginning of this project with you, you know, thinking that you were looking into the history of photography, and we're ending the book, um, finally getting to this, this point at which photography emerges as a central medium in the discourse of the field, in this discourse of Shashi. 
um, that you've really beautifully taken us through for the rest of the story. So chapter five looks at the use of photography by this group um, in the late part of the 19th century, and it changes our focus from the local context we were in before to Edo as a context. And in this period in which Edo is being transformed and renamed in the midst of the Meiji Restoration in the 1860s. So the focus of this chapter is the way that this group's discourse about shashin, this transposition of the real, becomes linked with this new technology in interesting and in part in surprising ways. There are three central figures uh, who emerge as the major interlocutors in this chapter. And I'm just going to um, mention and ask you to talk a little bit about a couple of them, because there are a couple of them that represent really transformative moments in um, the way that this tech, uh, technology and way of um, thinking about a medium comes together with ideas of the real um, in, in different ways. So one of these members is Ito Kesuke. And we've talked, I think, a little bit about him before. At this point in the story, um, he's already met um, this uh, doctor earlier that started out this uh, story, right? This mm-hmm. um, doctor that we talked about at the very beginning, um, von Siebold, who's a German physician working in Japan. He meets him again later on in the story. We'll talk about that in a moment. He meets him again in Edo after he's summoned to Edo as an employee of the Academy for Western Studies. So in this function, um, or in this set of functionings, Keisuke both heads a new office for the study of material goods and also works closely with the new Bureau for Pictorial Studies. And we'll see in what happens with him in this chapter the ways that he actually brings together really interestingly a concern with materiality and material goods and a concern with the pictorial um, in ways that inform what's happening in terms of the epistemic transformations of this chapter. So can you talk a little bit about what's happening with him in this chapter, uh, if, if you wouldn't mind? And, um, and how does his particular involvement in, um, you know, in government bureaucracy inform some way of the way we think about the transformation of Shashi in this period? Yeah. Um, so Ito Keisuke has been the leader of this group in Ori for, for you know, prior to coming to Edo. And by the time he comes to Edo, he stops seeing patients, is devoted entirely to this uh, governmental position, is basically selected as someone who knows extremely well the Western herbal traditions and therefore is um, headhunted by the Bakufu to come to the capital so he can start uh, educate the new, because the back food probably knew something was up and that they had to prepare. But so Itokeske has this incredible life journey from Nagoya, being ahead of this group, but also practicing fusion, comes to Edo. He's told to do what he does, which is to study Madre America. And this is this chance meeting with uh, Siebold. And um, after he comes to Edo, Keske is partially um, trying to accommodate the needs put forth by the government, but also realizing that he can't just continue to do what he did in Ori. So getting engaged with pictorial, uh, the Office of Pictorial, like pictorial, uh, <laughs> Bureau for Pictorial Studies. Studies. <laughs> 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 That's what I'm here. Getting <laughs> getting involved with that office, I think it's his kid's realization, okay, I have to do something new and something different. And so he takes pictorial representations much more seriously in Edo. That second meeting with Seabolt, when I learned about it, uh, I, I knew this is this is how my book is going to end. <laughs> because it was just almost too too amazing that um, they would meet again and there would be photographic representations involved. So, um, And this is actually, this is really interesting also just in terms of the way we understand visuality in this period because in addition to talking about the ways that Keisuke is actually incorporating a concern with value to the state in his assessment of material goods, which is new in this period, 
in the context of his meeting with Siebold, portraiture and the connection between photography, portraiture, and, mat and Materia Medica emerges as something that's a really interesting part of the story. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and it's, this is when the term Shishin becomes so poignant because it makes sense for Keisuke and people who worked with him within the group, group in Oari, it makes sense for them to call photographic representation portrait as Shashin. Right, because there's a name, there's a person, they know this person exists, it's about an encounter. And um, that, that I think, is um, an aspect of understanding photography or history of photography in Japan that hasn't been really addressed before, that it wasn't about only westernizing or only about making realistic images but it was about that there were concerns about matching these three things, the existence and the name and the encounter. Um, so, yeah. And this actually, um, and this is, a, this is a, a perfect way to segue into the last question, actually, that I'll ask you yeah. before we conclude, which is a way to, to push this then into the kind of crescendo of the book, which is where um, this way of negotiating between portraiture, shashin, materia medica, photography kind of comes to a head in the work of Yanagawa Shunshan, uh, Shunsan, rather, who's another member of this group who's doing exactly what you just described and kind of triangulating among the West, China, Japan, and these very different um, contexts that all come together in his work, specifically translating um, a, a piece on photographic technology. Yeah, yeah. So do you want to maybe sort of use him or, or use any part of this last part of the book to um, put a kind of um, to talk a little bit about how Shashin finally becomes associated um, unambiguously with photography and we see this at the very end of the book finally Yeah um, so Yanaga Shinsan was um, a very talented holy god um, innovator, he was interested in photography but in many other aspects of quote-unquote Western discourses, such as a newspaper. And he takes an interest in photography because he sees in it uh, an ability to shorten distance between where he is and what is out there. It could be uh, places in Europe, places in China, but he sees it as a way to shorten that distance. And he incorporates what he knew about this term shashin to call photography that. And um, yeah, that's probably as far as I think. Great. And I think it's perfect that it's, um, it's at the end of the book that we see the coming together of, the, of this equivalence, shashin and photography, um, rather than assuming that these are equivalent from the very beginning. And so I think it, it really nicely brings us to a conclusion of the book and also to a conclusion, um, almost, of our conversation. So, Maki, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to talk with me. There's, of course, a bunch of stuff that we didn't get a chance to talk about in the book. It's a very rich book, and that's not a, you know, a problem because listeners should go read the book. And as, we, as you have mentioned, pay special attention to the footnotes. <laughs> Is there anything, though, in particular um, about the book that you'd like to mention um, that, you know, falls under the category of things that we didn't actually have a chance to talk about, and perhaps especially for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read the book? Yeah, um, it's, I, I'm still questioning a lot about um, where this book fits, and I think that's probably why I wrote it, because I don't know where it fits in, it, in a sense of disciplinary belonging. Um, there are ways that I, you know, I mentioned how I revised it from a historical dissertation to something that could reach to a greater number of audience. But I do think that there, there, there are ways in which it could contribute to history of science or history of translation. And I guess I'm, kind of putting this out there because I want to hear how uh, you know after this decades and decades of hearing about interdisciplinarity I'm not sure I, I mean 
that's always in the back. How, how interdisciplinary can one get? And do we do it for the sake of that? Or is there a way in which we can actually produce meaningful work that relies upon these interdisciplinary methods? Um, so that's, that's one you know, question mark or aspects of the book that I would like to hear uh, from people who read the book uh, how successful it was or how it could relate to other fields. I mean, I think this is something that speaks a lot um, just in terms of the general issue Mm -hmm. to something that we talked very briefly about um, in the course of our conversation in terms of the content and approach uh, that you took in narrating the book itself, but I think that is um, very important to the work that the book does, and that is an effort to replace a discourse of dichotomies with a discourse of triangulation. So rather than uh, a story that's about this or that, it becomes a story that's about movement among fields. And I think that what you're doing here um, is one way of thinking about this transition from a this or that, this is either this field or that field, to a way of understanding transdisciplinary discourse as embodied by your book, as a movement among fields without necessarily feeling like you need to absorb the dichotomy and comfortably identify it with one or the other. And perhaps it's even more effective as understood, you know, as a process of triangulation. Right, right, yeah. I mean, I, I, that was my goal, but I'm just not uh, certain how successful. <laughs> well, I think it's successful. It's the word of one reader, so um, at least one reader feels like uh, it worked. <laughs> so, Maki, now that this book is out, and congratulations, as, as you know, I think it's a great book. What's next for you? What project or projects are currently inspiring you? So, um, one book thanks project that I'm working on is very unsurprisingly about portraits, ah. uh, and this is following decades where I left this book. So I'm looking at early major years of portrait production in photographs, in wood blocks, uh, in oil paintings, etc. But I'm thinking about portrait as a category that was being negotiated around that same time. In other words, nobody knew what to do with portraits, how to act, to interact with portraits. So the 1870s and 80s were, I feel like there were very uh, dynamic conversations about what does it mean to look at a portrait? What does it mean to hang a portrait? Uh, and how do we relate to this person who's represented? Um, so I, I'm, that's my one big project. The, there are a few smaller projects, but it's, it's more about, they're more methodological uh, inquiries. So the categories that we use in our history as a given, I'm questioning those. And I guess you know, portrait is one of the categories. Uh, periodization is another thing that I'm working on. So that's, that's, we can have another conversation, hopefully, about yeah. periodization, because yeah. I think a number <laughs> of us are, are um, it sounds like, simultaneously getting interested in questioning uh-huh. periodization in a way that I think would make for a really interesting dialogue. Yeah. So stay tuned for that. Um, <laughs> we'll talk about that another time. <laughs> thank you so much, Maki. It's really been a pleasure um, to talk oh, with you. And it was a pleasure to read the book. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> You've been listening to new books in East Asian studies. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>